Welcome to Inland Around War, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights on contemporary issues related to wars. In the third episode of season two of the Geneva Academy's podcast, In and Around Wars, Brian Lander, who is an alumnus of the Geneva Academy and the Deputy Emergency Director of the World Food Programme, tells us about the most pressing challenges regarding hunger in and beyond armed conflicts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to In and Around Wars, a podcast produced by the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. I am Antonio Coco, and I am a lecturer in international law at the University of Essex, an alumnus of the Geneva Academy LLM program, and a former teaching assistant at the Geneva Academy. Today, I'm co-hosting this episode with my friend, Anna Srovin Coralli. Hello, Antonio, and hello to all of our listeners. So my name is Anna Srovin Coralli, and I'm a teaching assistant at the Geneva Academy and a PhD student at the Geneva Graduate Institute. This is the third episode of the second season of the podcast. And if you have listened to our previous episodes for this second season, you will have realized that we are focusing on particularly interesting stories of alumni of the Geneva Academy. We discuss their experience as it relates to the things that you have learned at the Academy and to their professional activities. As usual, we have a very exciting guest today, and our guest is Brian Lander. So Brian is the Emergency Deputy Director of the World Food Program and alumnus of our program of the Geneva Academy called Executive Master in International Law and Armed Conflict, Generation 2017. Very warm welcome, Brian. Thank you. Thank you, Antonio. Thank you, Anna. It's great to speak with you and provide this opportunity to extend some of my experience and, and thoughts on these issues. Good to be here. We are very excited, Brian. So let's start head first into your professional activity with the World Food Program. The World Food Program is quite well known. It won the Nobel Prize for Peace in 2022. It is an international organization within the United Nations family, which provides humanitarian assistance in the form of food provisions, particularly all around the world. And you have been with the organization for a few years now, if I am correct. How did you get there? It's been a, a while I've been with the, with the World Food Program. I joined at the end of 2009, and I'd spent prior to that nearly two decades with the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So I, I was already in the humanitarian field and with the United Nations, and this opportunity with the World Food Program came up. So I, I joined and, and shifted to the headquarters here in, here in Rome, where I'm, I'm speaking to you now. So I spent my whole life in this area of work, whether it's refugees and forced displacement or, or now more about the, the direct assistance that we're providing to communities beyond refugees and, and internally displaced, you know, to, to communities that are affected by war and conflict uh, primarily around the world. Brian, that's super interesting, and it seems also somehow natural transition, right, from your previous experience. Now, what I wonder is your title is Emergency Deputy Director, but what does your work actually entail in practice? Like, what do you do, and do you focus on any particular areas or countries? So within the, the World Food Program, here at, at headquarters, we have a department that's focused 
on emergency response. WFP has a dual mandate of, of what we say is saving lives, which is that immediate response to humanitarian needs, and to changing lives, which we attempt to at least use our assistance to allow people to get back on their feet and perhaps be better able to cope with future crises. About 80% of what we do is focused on saving lives, on emergency response. That's where a large portion of the need is now in the world. And so therefore our focus is, is on that. And so it, with, with my work, we support our country operations in response. And where we see our capacity at the ground or an event that overwhelms our capacity or we feel that is, is going into a level that uh, requires additional support, we have staff that deploy from, from Rome or elsewhere in the world. We have staff with expertise on humanitarian access. We have staff with expertise on civil military relations. We have a group here that's focused on conflict an analysis, economic analysis, the meteorological impact as well. So we're providing analysis, staff support directly, expertise, and, and my role is to try to direct that and try to make sure that we are able to support our operations on the ground as effectively as possible and, and ensure that we've got a good handle on what actually is happening and what are the projections uh, that we need to be concerned about and, and therefore prioritize. So that's, that's my day-to-day -day job. That's, that's me looking at the world. In terms of focus, you know, we're, we're present in, I think it's now over 80 countries in the world. Currently, the, the number of people that are acutely food insecure in the world is about 345 million. And that, that cuts across all those, those countries. We're particularly concerned about populations that are really nearly on the, the doorstep of, of famine. That's about 43 million people in, in 53 countries. So we've got a broad spectrum of, of uh, focus in terms of, of our support to the, to the field. And uh, you can't say what, from day one to day two what, what you're going to focus on that day. It just it comes at you as, as things deteriorate around the world. And if I can just follow up, Brian, on this, where this passion of yours come from for really this topic and to deal with, in general, starvation, famine, food insecurity? Why? Well, I think um, I kind of grew up in the system. I, I joined the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Hong Kong in 1989. I mean, I, I don't want to show my age here, but uh, it's quite a while ago. And uh, I found an affinity for that work where you're helping people that are, are the most marginalized uh, and, and in need of, of help. And I found it very compelling and, and, and very attuned to my own thinking in the sense that you always want to help and how do you best channel that energy to try to help people. And I think moving to the World Food Program only deepened that because food is so immediate and food is such a such a foundation of society in, in so many ways you know whether it's you know a, a cultural affinity that that a particular country has or or whether it's just simply people trying to survive it, it's it's so fundamental to society and so for for me in the world food program it's that immediate connection that i have it's that immediate ability to 
to to say that you actually delivered something that could save a life. And I, I think it's a passion that I've I think I've just grown grown with throughout my life. So much to unpack there, Brian. I noticed that you used several expressions to describe the situations of people not having access to enough food. You talked about food insecurity, hunger, famine, Anna mentioned starvation. Could you perhaps try and help us understand the nuances of the differences between these expressions, if there is any? Yeah, there, there are a lot of nuances. Maybe the first place to start is, is how do we assess people's food insecurity? And there is what's largely referred to as the gold standard uh, is a mechanism or a, um, a process that goes through to assess people's food insecurity called the integrated phase classification. It's a very obscure name for something that's very practical and, and straightforward. But essentially that integrated phase classification has five levels. Level one being you and me, right? We, we know where our next meal is coming from and we can be fairly confident where we're good for the next month. Phase two is where you start to have some issues, but in large part, you're, you're okay. Phase three is where you really start to get into crisis level food insecurity. And there you're starting to make choices about whether you eat or whether your children eat or whether you go without one meal and, and instead, you know, save that for, for another day. And then phase four is really where you're getting to that point where you're on the brink of, of famine. And there we're saying people then start to use what we would call negative coping mechanisms. So you're selling your assets. You are perhaps putting yourself at risk by going to markets that are potentially insecure or, or you're traveling long distances. Or, and I think that's where we see a lot of um, impact is, is, is on forced displacement. People actually have to pick up and, and leave their homes and travel elsewhere in the country or across borders and become refugees. So that, that level four is really where we're seeing that, that impact. And, and then level five is, is fortunately fairly rare, but we are seeing increasing numbers of, of people in IPC5 or integrated phase classification five, which is considered to be famine conditions. Now it's a projection. It's, it's looking for the next three to six months, they will be in famine or let's let's call it starvation they will be starving within the next three to six months if they do not receive assistance or the situation changes fundamentally so that 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 last classification is the one where we get the 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 greatest concern in the past year we've seen seven countries with populations in ipc5 and that's that's unprecedented we've never seen that before and that's that's where Organizations like the World Food Program feel very compelled to to raise the alarm and and make sure that uh, everyone has a, a focus on on responding effectively to those. And in all of those cases, it's due to conflict. It's due to to armed conflicts. So there's a very very direct relationship between people's ability to to not only feed themselves but stay at home, continue their lives, but then also survive. You know, we often talk about what, what choices do people have? They, they can either stay at home and potentially starve or they can flee. Thank you, Brian. I would just like to ask a follow-up about who is in charge of 
of running this integrated phase classification. And I would like to hear your opinion about whether this monitoring system is effective or is there anything that should be adjusted or reformed? It's a, it's a joint effort. So it is organizations like WFP, like the, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and others that are looking at the data that's available in the country. And that's house-to-house uh, assessments. That's phone assessments. You know, if you don't have access to, to particular communities, those are indicators, economic indicators and other things that are brought together. And there is a discussion around what does that tell about uh, the communities that uh, are being assessed. It involves the government. It involves the government where these, these populations are located. And it is consensus-based. So there is a con- there's a conversation and there's a consensus on what is it that we all can agree is the situation for these communities. And that includes the, the government uh, that is, is responsible for those, those populations. So there is, there is a conversation out there whether or not because of the implications of the assessments, particularly when we have situations of, of famine or starvation, whether or not governments are willing to go along with that, I think is a question. And, uh, and you do see pushback in certain situations where, in a sense, it's an, it's, it's an indictment on their own ability to feed their civilians, and therefore they do not want to be publicly known for not being able to respond. So I think there is a question out there whether or not that consensus model is necessarily the best model to give you the clearest picture. But at the moment, it does allow for the type of response that's necessary because you do have the government agreeing with that outcome and therefore the need for humanitarian assistance. So there's there's two sides of the coin that one, how realistic is it for governments to go along with assessment that potentially is critical of their own governance (laughs) and on the other hand their buy-in that's necessary to ensure that you provide the right assistance brian you've mentioned a couple of times uh, the connection of the ties if you like between the hunger and armed conflict so i want to take you now to uh, to the un security council resolution 2417, which was issued on this topic. And I would like to ask you whether you could tell us a little bit more of the content and aims of this resolution. I think it came out in 2018, right? Correct, correct. 2417 was a a resolution which was adopted by consensus, which for the Security Council today, that's a pretty big achievement in and of itself. So it, it speaks about the impact of, of conflict on hunger and a little bit about the impact of hunger on, on, on conflict, but largely about how conflict is driving hunger. And it, it really reinforces the, the prohibition on starvation as a method of war. It speaks to the, the principles and the, the rules of, of, of IHL and, and reinforces those. But then I think importantly, what it adds at the end is a, a mechanism to report to the council when there is evidence of starvation being used as a method of war. There's three ways of doing that. One is, is through 
the Secretary General himself raising concern with, with the council, and there's calls for, for regular reporting on that. And then there's also inclusion in the regular reporting on the protection of, of civilians to include this as a, as a particular focus. And so in, in both cases, the World Food Program is, is quite involved. We have been reporting informally to the council on the resolution ever since its adoption. So we reported two times a year on, on situations where we know that starvation was being utilized in war. And the most recent report, for instance, was issued just a, a couple of weeks ago in April. I say this, it's informal. We, we have a member state, in this case it was Switzerland, that will take the report and put it to a, a committee within the council that then has this informal briefing. And we've really tried to push the recommendations to allow for them to try and find a way to implement something in relation to what we're trying to report on. And, and I must admit that I think the implementation has been, has been difficult. We haven't seen the council responding to the recommendations we're putting forward in a very concrete way. There's a lot of interest. I wouldn't say that there's no interest in this, but how do you actually implement a response to that? So the, the latest report we focused on the situation in Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, so the Kivus. We focused on Burkina Faso, where we've had an insurgency in the north that now is impacting the Gulf of Guinea countries as well. And we focused on Haiti. And Haiti is where we've seen the gang warfare have a huge impact on, on food security to the extent that at the end of last year, we saw what I referred to earlier, IPC5, so as evidence of famine being created in Port-au-Prince, in the town of Port-au-Prince. So 20,000 people were being put into a situation of starvation by the gangs at that point because we did not have humanitarian access. So we felt that that was significant enough to, to report to the council. And just to follow up on this, Brian, so it seems to me, based on what you say, that where things get blocked is somehow at the Security Council, right? At the point where they should be then actually implementing your recommendations. But I wonder, do you think there is another way if, if the, I don't know, if the UN Security Council issues the next resolution on this topic, could there be a way to make this more efficient that you can have maybe even more straightforward approach, if you like, to the countries so that the things don't get blocked when you have to report back and then they have to approach the country, the concerned country itself? What do you think would strengthen these resolutions? Or a new one. Well, I think one of the one of the big issues for reporting on the resolution is evidence. We're reporting, as I said, on an informal basis, and I would argue a voluntary basis. The council hasn't come back to us and said we want to hear from you on this, but rather we have been more proactive in putting forward what we feel are are situations of, of direct concern to the council. I mean, when we talk about engagement with the council, we're, we're saying that food insecurity and the impact of conflict rises to the level of a question of, of peace and security, which is fundamental to the mandate of the council. So we feel very compelled to do this. But where we have constraints is around evidence. 
And I say that not because there isn't evidence, but rather because as an operational agency, as a humanitarian organization, we have to be very careful about calling out specific actors on their behavior that may compromise our ability to actually continue to operate. And so we, we have to adopt a very careful balance between what we're saying and the kind of concrete things we can put forward. We rely largely on others to publicize information that then we can refer to. So for instance, the Human Rights Council reports on, on Haiti or others do contain very concrete information that we then replicate in a way, but try to couch it in terms of, of our own, our own uh, ability to operate. The reporting that we focus on is, is impact on displacement. So where do we see a displacement as a result of, of the food insecurity? Impact on food systems. So where do we see attacks against water systems, against fields or against uh, markets? And then third, our ability to access or our including security of staff. So we report on those three things. Where I think there could be an improvement, and this is open for debate, but I, I think we could have a group of experts created that would be able to be much more hard-hitting and direct about the evidence that's, that's, that's obvious in these cases. We've seen, for instance, the independent mechanism for Myanmar, for instance, put in place, which is gathering information, but not reporting necessarily. I think we could go beyond that. I think the council should have, or the secretary general himself, for instance, should have a group of experts sitting next to him saying, we're seeing this today, and this is what we think the council should do. So the link between conflict and hunger is actually a strong one. You even said that there is some sort of cycle whereby hunger feeds into conflict and conflict feeds into hunger, as if the reasons for the conflict could also be seen in the lack of food security in a society. So could you please elaborate a little bit on that? How is it that lack of food security could actually fuel conflict, if at all? I think we've seen a number of, of, of incidents of it over the past years. You recall, um, I don't remember the year exactly, but it was in the mid-2000s when in Kenya elections, there was quite a lot of violence um, in the countryside. And, and it, was, it was largely around the lack of food at the time and, and linking that to the election. So the availability of food was being used to, to escalate conflict and, and division within Kenya at that point. You know, during the Arab Spring, for instance, we saw the rise of, of food prices and uh, the availability of bread, which is you know such a fundamental commodity across uh, the Middle East, let alone anywhere else, and that led to a lot of destabilization of economies and and protests. You know, you see social unrest being generated by rising prices, by availability of of basic commodities, and I think since since COVID and the economic crisis that uh, was generated by those, those several years of, of, of just huge constraints and, and the impact of food prices at that point as well. Now we've, you know, we, we look around the world today and the number of conflicts that we see rising from that period. And I think not, you can't only link it to, to, to food, but certainly the availability of food and the ability of people to 
survive and, and continue is, is certainly a driver of a lot of the social unrest and conflict that we're seeing around the world. So it's, it's part of a more complex cause, I think, of conflict, but it's certainly a significant piece. And I think that's where we see the need to ensure that people have continue to have access to food. Uh, at one point, you know, we're very worried about the availability of food. At the moment, it's more about the access of people to food, whether the market's working, whether the prices are at a level where people can continue to feed themselves at a reasonable level. But at some point, there's also a big concern about whether or not there's actually food available in the market. You know, the links, for instance, to the Ukraine crisis and then the Black Sea Grain Initiative that occurred thereafter, that's largely been about that availability question. And we haven't hit that point yet, but I think we're very concerned that that's coming in many places. Since it's so important to analyze the linkage between conflict and hunger, I think it's also important to recognize when is there an armed conflict in a country in which you see early signs of food insecurity. So I was wondering, how do you do that? How do you distinguish gang violence from proper armed conflict? Do you use the definitions that are available in international humanitarian law, or do you have any other method? I would say very directly no. Our focus is on vulnerability. So what we look at is a community's ability to cope, and what is the impact of violence or conflict or climate change or, or whatever it may be that is impacting that community. Now, that being said, international humanitarian law is very relevant to our own ability to operate. So it becomes more of a, an operational issue, for instance, when we negotiate with authorities to reach a community it's, it's on the basis of, you know, those fundamental principles of humanitarian access and safety of staff and the ability of, of people to, to feed themselves. And so I, I wouldn't say, at, you know, at the front end, we're, we're concerned about whether or not it is a conflict or not. And this goes to the case of Haiti, for instance, where we do have the incidence of, of armed gangs in fact, you know, the, the use of the word gangs is something that we've been challenged on, and rather we have to refer to organized criminal networks is, is what they're telling us to use, which is a, a strange term. But the, the, the essential impact is violence, and we're a bit indifferent to why they're creating that violence, but where we do see the impact is that, you know, then when you have IHL concerns, for instance, going to the Security Council, they don't classify it as an armed conflict, and therefore it's not something that is of, of their direct concern. It's rather a question of law and order at the national level. And that's where then it impacts on us, because then we're left holding the bag. We're the humanitarians that solve the political problem that has no political solution. And, uh, and I'd say that's, that's where it becomes a concern. Brian, now it's the moment that I tell you a secret. The secret is that starvation is part of my PhD. So you will be now the victim of my PhD. I apologize in advance. I'm particularly excited. I was excited about this podcast because finally I can ask one question that bothers me that doesn't allow me to sleep for the past two years. I'm joking. I've been sleeping. But, um, you know, so in international criminal law, there was a 
quite important, I think, development in 2020. So the Assembly of State Parties of the International Criminal Court, they agreed on adopting this uh, new war crime of starvation as a method of, uh, of warfare in the situations of non-international armed conflict, right? So not only in the wars between states, but also in the internal wars. So on the one hand, you've emphasize, you've stressed many obstacles which you face in situations where you said, so even the gangs, they wouldn't, they wouldn't classify or they wouldn't correspond to the violence to reach a threshold of international armed conflict. Still, I wonder whether this development has been helpful to your work in any way. And I also wonder, what is your opinion? Do you think that this war crime can be committed by failure to act? So I'm thinking of these situations where, for instance, you have occupying powers not providing the food to the civilian population in the occupied territories, or even uh, situations when the state party blocks, let's imagine that they block the, the humanitarian aid or humanitarian convoys, which would provide food and medication to civilians. What do you think? That's great. I'm I'm glad that there's one more piece of work that's that's out there. This is a this is an agenda I think that doesn't get enough attention. In terms of you know how do we address some of those failures, as it were, in in circumstances, it's it is it's hard because what what we as humanitarians are doing is we're we're responding to the consequences of essentially political failure. That seems to be the only solution for most crises in the world today. And that's unfair, right? I, I don't think it's fair to put that on to, to humanitarians. So, yes, the, the addition to the International Criminal Court statute is, is extremely welcomed by us because it does, it does situate this as, as comprehensive. It's, it's covering all situations where we see conflict. And I think that was a huge gap in the law for, for a long time. I think what we'd like to see is uh, more states now adopt the amendment. And, and we've, I was actually in the, in the Hague not too long ago where we had a conversation about promoting uh, states succeeding to that, uh, that, uh, that change. So I, I think that's one step in, in the right direction. But when it comes to actual impact on the ground, it's one more tool in our, in our toolbox. And, and that's never a bad thing. Whether or not uh, states will do anything different, I think I'm a bit skeptical. I don't think there's been enough condemnation of the type, the type of behavior that we've seen in many of these conflicts to cause them concern. And I think one of the most obvious examples that I've been involved with more recently is, is the blockade of northern Ethiopia during the conflict there. And I think if you look at it from a government perspective, it was successful. Essentially, there was a, a resolution to the conflict. But at what a huge price. At, at the time, we knew that starvation was occurring for hundreds of thousands of people in that area, and we had no access, none, no access, for long, long, long periods. And I... I don't think we've actually come to grips with, with that yet. What concerns me even more then is that there was no consequence of that behavior and therefore other governments look at it as good practice. Why don't we do the same type of tactics 
to compel populations to concede, to to surrender, to um, to give in to government um, military action, and I think that's a huge problem. Uh, we've seen it in West Africa now, with Burkina Faso, with Mali, with the type of tactics that we're seeing employed there. I, I don't think there's been a realization yet. I, I I think the use of starvation as a method of war is still largely acceptable, unfortunately. Brian, I've been taking so many notes you cannot imagine. I mean, I'm lucky there's going to be recording afterwards, but um, it's been incredible. I've learned so much, really. It's certainly sad to hear about the difficulties with coping with states who engage in starvation as a tactic, as a method to obtain advantage in the conflicts that they fight. But it was so enriching to learn about this from you, Brian. Definitely our listeners will have also learned so much. It has been a fantastic conversation, and it's really a shame that we have to slowly come to an end. Before we do this, however, if you have listened to our previous episodes, you will know that there is a question that we ask to every single one of our guests. And it is a question about your experience at the Geneva Academy. We would like to know if there is any memory or any anecdote that you would like to share with us, something that makes you laugh or smile and that you think we should know. I, I look at my experience at the Academy as, as, as so enlightening for me. I was a humanitarian, as I said, for, for years and years, largely focused on refugee law. So I knew the refugee law side of things. But when it came to, to food and the use of humanitarian assistance and the real fundamental, and I always, it, it's foundational in society as well. I, I find IHL just so fundamental to this human experience and, and, and the, the way that we behave and the way that we act that it, it was extremely enlightening for me and really inspired me to go even deeper into this whole conversation around starvation and, and what is driving it and what do we do about it? And I feel like I would be irresponsible in my position not to do as much as I can to, to further the agenda, to, to really ground this whole idea of the prohibition of starvation as a method of war. And I, and I, I guess what, what I learned at the academy is that there is such a, a dearth of, of information and, and examination of the issue. I, I don't think that it's really been given the attention it deserves, given the impact that it has. And the fact that no one's ever been prosecuted for the crime of starvation is just extraordinary to me. Well, Brian, it's amazing to hear that actually your best memory is just the academy itself as a whole experience. I'm really, really glad to hear this. And um, well, thanks to, to everyone here, everyone in the room. So thanks to Brian, thanks to Antonio, thanks to Margarita, also our producer. I've loved, uh, I've really enjoyed so much this interview and, I, and I've learned so much. Uh, so thank you for, for sharing. Now, before I say goodbye, I just want to remind to our listeners that you can listen to this episode whenever you like. So on the usual platform for podcasts, including the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on. Please leave us a good review if you like the episode, of course. And make sure also to subscribe if you don't want to miss any episode. Bye-bye, and I look forward to the next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to In and Around Wars, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. If you've enjoyed this episode, 
Don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with Geneva Academy alumni. You can also check the Geneva Academy's website at www.geneva-academy.ch to find more resources and upcoming events on contemporary issues of international humanitarian law and policy.